This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Hey everybody, I just got back from Svalbard, uh, an island north of Norway, 600 miles from the North Pole. I was searching for polar bears. More on that later. Right now, I want to share a really special experience I had a couple of months ago. It was a conversation I had with my friend and fellow conservationist Ian McAllister. Ian's the director of a new IMAX film called The Great Bear Rainforest. He's also an award-winning photographer and the author of six books and co-founder of Pacific Wild. I interviewed Ian on stage in front of about 400 people. We talked about a group of rare white bears that he featured in his IMAX film. These North American black bears are completely white. But they're not polar bears, and they're not albino. They're actually black bears with a genetic mutation that makes them white. They're known as spirit bears, and they only live in the coastal rainforest in British Columbia, a really magical place. Ian told me that he has a theory about why these bears are white. He thinks it's all about camouflage. And so being camouflaged has actually proven to be a, a benefit to bears because if you're black, you kind of act more of a silhouette and salmon will run away from you. So if you're in a river fishing and you're white, you actually have a better chance of catching a salmon. And, and I, I find that so fascinating because, you know, what it means, and this is something that, you know, we try to explore in the film, but we, we explore also in our conservation work and something that I've certainly learned uh, over the years and continue to be inspired by is, you you know, the influence and the power of the ocean in the terrestrial world. And if you consider that, you know, salmon being this marine creature, you know, comes into these rivers at the end of their life cycle, that the power of this marine fish is so powerful that it actually has changed the color of a bear. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we're constantly seeing this, this amazing influence of the ocean over the rainforest and, and, I think, and especially especially the salmon in that case right you know it's those nutrients that are piled into that part of the world and let's talk about that and um i want to talk to you about the forest in in, in a minute the, the the bears though how many of is it about one in ten uh in that part of the world that are white black bears is that about the ratio? Well, yeah, if you read any of my books, it says one in ten. But the truth is, you know, some guy in the early 90s walked up uh, one of the big fjords and he saw nine black bears and the tenth <laughs> one was white. And the next thing One you in know, ten it is. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Um, but, I'm going to uh, tell Ian that. Then you put um, it in all your books, you know. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, what we do know is that they are truly one of the rarest bears in the world. There's perhaps less than 200 of them in existence today, which, you know, makes them rarer than the panda bear. Wow. Um, and they're only found in, in these uh, remote rainforest enclaves up on the north coast of British Columbia, especially these offshore, offshore islands. And what makes them even more unique is that the black bears found in the Great Bear Rainforest are genetically differentiated from their continental kin. So, mm. you know, somewhere around 350 or so thousand years ago, the, these coastal black bears found a way to make a living on the coast and sort of separated from the rest of the rest of the black bears in North America. And out of that rare coastal population is this recessive gene that allows for this 
pure white bear to exist. Mm, one in ten. Remember, one in ten. <laughs> one, two, three. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> so these, it's a fact. So, <laughs> so, you know, you would think, I think the question burning on a lot of people's minds is, well, I would think, you know, that the white bears might be more nervous than the black bears. Yeah, we, we really don't get into racial profiling when we're with the bears. <laughs> it's, uh, um, but, you know, sometimes I do wonder because, you know, people are up there, of course, there's, there's some tourism and, and bear viewing going on. And, and you, you kind of wonder about these poor black bears, like, why is everyone taking pictures of this white thing, you know, over there? Why does, <laughs> right, you know, what's right. wrong with us? Yeah. And, yeah, is, no, there, is there a difference between, I mean, is it, it's, it's just as easy to, to film a, a black black bear as, as it is a white black bear? It seems that way. It's hard to really generalize. You know, bears are so intelligent, as you know, and, and have such individual personalities that it's really hard to differentiate between them in terms of behavior. It's, uh, it's a lot more of a think about personal or individual personalities than anything right. else. Right. So, stupid question, but what drew you to this place? You know, this place seems like magical in every way. What was it initially took you there? Yeah, well, I do live on a pretty small island of uh, 70 or so people, and I kind of look around, and you realize, you know, you're either pushed or pulled, and it seems like all my neighbors were pushed there because there's nowhere left to go, uh, you know, on the west coast of Canada. But, uh, you know, I, d- I definitely got drawn to the place. I grew up on, in Victoria on Vancouver Island, and, you know, from a fairly young age, got involved in some of the forest battles there, and you know, over it's getting close to 90% of Vancouver Island has now been, you know, liquidated of its old growth temperate rainforests. And out of the 86 or so intact primary watersheds left on the west coast of Vancouver Island, there's now only about three, uh, only three that are uh, left intact. So, you know, having grown up in sort of the brutality of the forest industry in British Columbia as a, as a backdrop, and then having an opportunity to go north of Vancouver Island to the central north coast, where there were hundreds and hundreds of intact river valleys as, as far as you could travel day after day after day on boats and in And did you, fly, did you fly over this place when you first got there and well, couldn't believe your eyes, what you were seeing down below? Well, uh, really, uh, I was on a boat the first time yeah. and traveled to this one valley called the Quay River and to see it just teeming with life and grizzly bear tracks all up and down the, the uh, riparian areas and the intact rainforest as far as you could see. It just, you know, the contrast from what I'd witnessed on the south coast was was so great. It was supposed to be a week-long trip that's now it's getting on to about 30 years. So, uh, <laughs> you want, yeah. You, you I know. hope you told them back at work you want to take some time off, right? You know, you know if, I, if I talk to students and whatnot, and, uh, you know, all I say is, you know, just choose carefully because uh, yeah. you never know where you're going to be. Uh, I, you know. I, uh, my parallel um, experience to that about, like you say, you went from the destruction of Vancouver Island and found the Shangri-La for bears and forests and I think about it a lot when I'm in Alaska. You know, I spend a lot of time in the Katmai Coast up on, in, um, on the Alaska Peninsula, and it's one of the densest brown bear populations in the world up there. And I'm always there thinking about the brown bears, the grizzly bears here in our Cascades, where we may have two or three left in 10,000 square miles. And you get off a skiff onto the sandy beach up there in Katmai, and suddenly there are thousands of grizzly bear tracks around you. And I've never seen one single track here in the North Cascades. It would be a career highlight. It's kind of... When you find those places, when you've come from places that are lacking what those new pastures and, and, and opportunities have, it's really, really vivid, isn't it? You know, it sticks with you. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, to think of, you know, at one time there was unbroken grizzly bear trails from San Francisco to, to western Alaska. And, 
And, and that's really what defines, I think, it's originally for me why we focus so much on the Great Bear Rainforest was because by the time you get into the large primary watersheds that are still intact and still supporting salmon, uh, you're also getting into large carnivores like grizzly bears and, and wolves and whatnot. And so the, the, the relationship is, is, is very strong. Awesome. Let's talk about some of that. We've got, uh, there's a couple of pictures up behind that sort of describe some of the, the wildlife that you see in there. Whales and, and, and salmon, grizzly bears, sea lions. I've got to say, when I watched the film this week, um, uh, we're writing the sea lion script for the podcast episode on, on, uh, on sea lions, where, where we sort of get into the mind of a sea lion. Watching the footage from your film of them underwater, wow, it's like they're flying. So thank you. I'm going to use the inspiration, and, and put, we're going to put that in the podcast as a line to describe how a sea lion moves underwater, because it's literally like they've got mm-hmm. giant wings that they're flapping through the water, through those, through those kelp fields. It's just it's those kelp forests. It's amazing. So tell us about some of the other species there. What, what, uh, what are the highlights? A lot, a lot of humpback whales, right, for one. Yeah, one of the great success stories of the, of the North Coast is the return of humpback whales. You know, when I first started exploring the, the place, um, you'd, you'd come back from a few months, and if you saw a humpback whale, you, it was big news. It was like, wow, I saw, you know, some humpback whales. And, and then they started coming back more and more numbers, and they started bubble net feeding and vocalizing. And, you know, now we've got this incredible return uh, of, of humpback whales. And, you know, it really begs the question about, you know, why are they returning? Is it, are they returning? Because these are long-lived species and it's not like the reproductive rate is suddenly growing so much that there's just this many more humpback whales. It's more that they're making a conscious decision to come back to this place. And, it's, and what it, are they coming back for? Yeah, well, it's a great question. A lot of people are really wondering why. And, you know, what we do know is that, uh, you know, in, as early as, or as recent as the 1950s, there were whaling ships in the remote bays and inlets of the Great Bear Rainforest, you know, with dead humpback whales tied up alongside. So, you know, these are long-lived animals that have incredible memories, and, and so it's probably that they've been slowly been coming back to areas and waters that they traditionally, of course, lived in and found, you know, humans have changed and that these waters are safe again, and they go back to Hawaii or Mexico to their wintering grounds, and they're like, hey, I came back fat, and, you know, they're not, they're not harpooning us anymore. And so, you know, this is a, this I, is, I, uh, this is a cultural... Um, that is the most amazing thought that, as a species that that's long-lived, that it can see how we're evolving or devolving and make decisions based on that. It's an, it's, it gives you hope in some ways, doesn't it, you know, that animals can work their way around us and, and make the decisions like those whales are doing. That's incredibly Absol- touching. Yeah, no, absolutely. And when you think about that, you know, this isn't, that's not a genetic thing. It's not that it was hardwired in their DNA. This is, this is obviously they're there for the food. There's food, which tells you the oceans are still productive. Um, but they're also quiet waters, and as you know, shipping traffic has increased so dramatically and exponentially in, uh, in, in all the world's oceans, especially the Pacific. This is one of the last quiet acoustic refuges for, for whales to communicate and be whales. So it's, it's probably a combination of those things. But I, I find the cultural one that this has learned behavior through the long, long lifespan of these animals, uh, one that's really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And... Um, Got to talk to you about wolves. Um, your wolf images have always completely blown me. Look at this picture up here on the top right. Isn't that crazy? Okay, Chris here in the studio again. I just want to jump in so I can describe this photo we had projected behind us on the stage. In McAllister's camera was half in the water 
and half out. And you can see the wolf's feet in the water and its nose is super up close in the foreground of the photo, almost like it was sniffing the camera or something. You can see the forest and mountains behind the wolf. Now back to me on the stage. I mean, what is the story behind that? How do you go about getting a wolf photograph like that, Ian? Uh, a lot of stupidity. <laughs> I was, well, I was, um, I was filming herring, and uh, you know, so I had a wetsuit on, and you know, black hoodie, and everything, and uh, sort of down filming the herring spawning along the shoreline, and. And I knew this pack of wolves always came out at herring season early in the spring to go down at low tide and feed on the herring eggs. And, and I always had this idea of, you know, wouldn't it be great to get the herring and the wolf and the rainforest and everything together and seemed like such a, uh, you know, no-brainer idea. And so, you know, I saw this pack of wolves down the bay and uh, I thought, well, I'm just going to swim over to shore and I'll be ready with my underwater camera and I'll sit there. And, and you know, I've been telling people about how these wolves, you know, um, prey on seals uh, and... <laughs> And uh, it was about the time when the wolves just came around the point, and I got my camera all ready, and I'm ready for this shot I've been thinking about for years, when it suddenly dawned on me that, you know, with a black hood, I looked just like a seal. <laughs> and uh, so they, so of course, the first thing the wolves do is they, like, perk right up and just immediately <laughs> run right for me. And, you know, before I know it, I'm, you know, I got this wolf chewing on my snorkel, and, uh, but I managed to snap a few pictures before they... Uh, <laughs> They took off, and, and I thought, you know, In this is like... true Canadian low-key style, I've got to say. Just, well, I just managed to snap off a few pictures as it was chewing on the snorkel, just you like, know. Yeah, sheepishly swam back to the boat thinking, you know, so close to a Darwin Award, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> We're glad you made it, mate. We're glad you made it. My name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Ian and I met uh, a few years ago over um, a project that the BBC was doing about our wolves here in Washington State. And um, a great connection to that story was that uh, the source populate. Do you remember in um, 2008, our first wolves came back to Washington State after an absence of nearly 100 years? So it was a thing to celebrate. The lookout pack came back and set, set themselves up in, uh, near Twisp on the east side, and the source population of those wolves, the source of them was British Columbia. So as part of this BBC show, I, I was, <laughs> it was put on me to head up to Ian's neck of the woods to talk about the wolves there and where they might have st stemmed from, the wolves that came back to our, to our North Cascades here, and got a chance to work with Ian and learn from him about that amazing place. And just the thought of that being the source of the wolves that are now coming back to our state, I thought was a wonderful thing. How are they doing in, in, on the BC coast? Are they, are they, are they healthy populations? And yeah, well, it's a big question. How are they doing? Uh, you know, I, I, I was first drawn to the rainforest up there, I think largely through, you know, the perspective of grizzly bears and just rethinking, you know, if this landscape can support, you know, a thousand-pound animal, it, it means it's such a great indication of the health of the rainforest and the strength of the salmon runs and whatnot. And, 
And over the years, you know, you know, I guess also realizing, you know, as I was staying up there longer and longer and with the bears longer and longer, and then, you know, you watch the last bear go up into the high country to den up for the winter and in late October, and then you realize, well, shoot, I'm going to be sitting here for six months waiting for the, you know, and then a wolf comes trotting by, and you're like, well, what's this guy up to? You know, he, he's, he's actually tells us a heck of a lot more about the environment than these bears, because they're sleeping half the year. Uh, these wolves, you know, are obligatory carnivores. They're the, truly the apex predator of the coast. They have to make a living every day, or they cease to exist. They actually t- are telling us a heck of a lot about the coast, and so, you know, really started to follow these wolves um, throughout the landscape, and it's and it's just, you know, just so fascinating to, you know, really uncover some of the secrets of these amazing, amazing carnivores. You know, in particular, the, the influence that the ocean has on them and their reliance on, on the ocean for their survival. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I love your film does such a good job of that, you know, by intertwining all of the ecosystem stories here and how one species is here because of another. The herring are a huge part of this, aren't they? Yeah, herring, just one of the most fascinating forage fish uh, in the Pacific. Truly a foundation species that feeds almost everything. You know, this whole coast, everything, you know, our economy, our ecology owes its existence to this mighty, mighty little fish. And, uh, you know, historically they were found throughout from western Alaska all the way down to California. Today their numbers have really collapsed and there's very few strong populations left. Uh, nevertheless, they're holding on, um, but what you, know, you realize is how fundamentally and profoundly uh, important they are to everything that exists on this coast. And so we've really immersed ourselves in, in herring, in the world of a herring over the last bunch of years, and it's just been absolutely fascinating. I love, what I love about that is you went for the bears, you found the wolves, and then you're like, oh, it's all about the herring. Really, you know? Yeah. It all kind of ties together. It, it is. It's amazing. And it's, it's also this cultural theme that resurfaces with herring where, you know, salmon are so hardwired, genetically hardwired, to get into those natal streams to spawn, and nothing will stop them short of a, a dam or something. You know, they will do everything possible to get to those natal streams. And, and yet, you know, herring are not genetically hardwired like that. They're taught by the elders. They're taught by their elder herring. And the, the small herring, you know, even though they're not um, spawning, will be always with the elders as they go into their traditional spawning grounds. And, you know, they haven't been able to genetically differentiate populations throughout the herring schools, uh, and which really baffles, you know, geneticists mm-hmm. and ecologists. And so there's this, this emerging idea that it's actually cultural. It's learned behavior. And unfortunately, we have systematically, through industrial fisheries and rendering fisheries, systematically taken out all of the old herring. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when we see herring acting so bizarrely now, and, you know, old-time fishermen are like, you know, I've never seen herring act like that. Well, it's like because we killed all the elders, we've killed wow. um, their ability for these young generation of herring to learn. And you know, and we're seeing this behavior, we're seeing this um, this idea of culture and wolves, and we're seeing it in so many different species. And yet, it's still really not part of our thinking when we um, certainly not wildlife management thinking in, in terms of government and industry, but it's. It's uh, one of, I think, the really more fascinating parts of uh, the really is, conservation yeah. work that we're doing. What I do love in your film as well is how you focus very much on the First Nations people and just the way you talk. It's apparent how much time you spent around the amazing Indigenous people up there. The line in there from one of the, from one of the health suck young people that, that you feature there is, take care of the herring and the herring take care of us. 
It's just a lovely line, right? Because it speaks for the planet itself, I think. You could expand that to all kinds of species and places. I've got to say, you, um, back to this place, you can't... I look at that overview there, and I thank you for the role that you played in protecting it. You protected this place. I know you had a lot of support and a lot of people around you, but you led the fight to protect this great bear rainforest. And for that, I think, a round of applause for Ian. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing... It is an amazing thing that you've, that you've accomplished there, Ian, and um, I know that it doesn't happen easily. It's been a lifelong fight. What is it, do you feel, that it's about this place? You know, what does this place mean to you that makes you want to spend your every waking hour to protecting it? Well, yeah, I mean, first, it's, it, as you said, it's, there's been a tremendous amount of people that work on behalf of this coast, and in particular, uh, indigenous people, First Nations, who um, you know, true stewards and, and leaders and on all fronts, conservation and otherwise, uh, none of the successes that we've had would have been would be possible without strong leadership from uh, these First Nation communities. We're kind of more just rabble rousers and flag wavers, and you know, hope somebody listens and leverages, and we're able to leverage some support for the efforts up there. But um. I, I read a story. Can you tell a story about um, your dad? Your dad thrust you into the <laughs> into the fray at one point. I read a st- Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, yeah, I know. Um, years ago, we went to. This is in the late '80s. We went to Clackwood Sound. I was a teenager, and uh, you know, the whole community had just been arrested and hauled off to jail in Vancouver. Uh, I shouldn't say the whole community, but a, a big chunk of it, because the, they were protesting the logging and in Clackwood Sound and so we arrived there and there was just a handful of people from outside of Canada manning the blockade which is just some flimsy wicker basket sitting over a logging road up a tree and and they said well you know everyone just got arrested and hauled away and uh, you know there's no one left to sit up in this tree and dad just pushed me forward and said well he'll do it So it's true. Yeah, yeah. He just pushed you forward, and what did you do? I got stuck in this wicker basket with a Margaret Atwood novel for two days. It's like like a a nightmare for a teenage boy. (laughs) Thanks, Dad. I've I've apologized to Margaret since that story, but anyway. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, You have kids, right? Yes. Do they they carry on the the, the nature gene? Are they involved? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they grew up in in the Great Bear Rainforest, and uh, they think it's pretty normal. They they were so amazed when we left left that little island to get them into a, a school with more than three kids. Um, that n- not everyone went to school in a school boat. You know, every, they thought everyone just went to school in a boat every day. They, they're like, man, these kids are so lucky. Look at the yellow school bus they got to go on. <laughs> I think they kind of finally figured out what I maybe what I'm up to. This IMAX may have saved me as a father because they're like, you know, finally we can actually explain to our friends what you do. You're, oh. you know, <laughs> he's a movie director. Yeah, we can put our finger on it. Yeah. So with the movie, that's not an easy project. I just want to uh, spend a couple of minutes talking about the, 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 the making of this and the, how challenging it is. That doesn't happen overnight, right, making an IMAX movie. Uh, what happened to get it going and why did you think this would be a good idea and are you regretting it? <laughs> well, did you ever get to a point where it's like, what the heck yeah. do I let myself in for here? Yeah, well, it, you know, it's one of those projects, I mean, the coast is so beautiful and so magnificent and so grand and visual storytelling has always been a, an important part of our conservation work, you know, through books and films and magazines and 
et cetera, et cetera. And, but it always seemed to truly do justice to this coast. It, it deserved to be on the, the big screen, you know, to be the closest really to getting people to see what's there and to inspire. And to, it belongs to, on a screen that big, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, you know, everything else is just, yeah, it's just not, just doesn't do it justice. And so it was always a, an idea in the back of my mind that the, the coast deserved an I, to be, an IMAX should be done on it. And, and, you know, I pitched it here, there, and everywhere, and, you know, finally found a Vancouver businessman, Kyle Washington, to fund it a few years ago, and which was fantastic. And then at one point in the process, he, you know, he looked around the room and he said, you know, we were just still talking about it, and he said, well, who's going to direct this thing? And one of my colleagues said, well, Ian will. And I'm just like, oh. and so I walked out of there going, well, I guess this is, I guess this is happening. This and seems to be a recurring theme <laughs> for you, just like being yeah. shoved into the middle of something. So yeah, this whole, yeah, fake it to make it. But you know, we, uh, but it was yeah, a huge learning curve because film of this nature had never been done on the West Coast before. And the technology for camera equipment was changing rapidly as we were, you know, doing this project. And then of course, everything had to be done from scratch. And so that was the biggest challenge. All of the footage and every, all the material and all of the, um, content that we had been achieving over the last 20 or so years, not a, a second of it could be used. So think about the 30 years of experience that I've had with all these incredible things with wolves and bears and whales. You know, you, you want the best of everything you've experienced to get into this 40-minute IMAX film, but you've only got three years to achieve it. And, uh, you know, these herring seasons only last for about 10 days each year. So if you miss the first, you miss it, you miss it the first year, you got to wait a whole another year to get it uh, the next time. So, yeah, lots of challenges, but also just an amazing journey that we embarked on. And I, you know, I was so grateful to, to have the time. You know, it took us almost, uh, it was about two and a half to three years to film it. But to really just go out and immerse ourselves, you know, of course, these are all wild animals and, and these aren't paid actors, you know, these are First Nations people that are, you know, fiercely independent and proud of their culture. And, and so we really were just like photo or film journalists traveling through a landscape, never knowing what we would be filming or never knowing really what stories would be told, just knowing that if we're out there and you spend enough time, then magical moments will happen. Oh, and they did. You know, one of the, you're going to hate me for this. You know what I watched your film on? Oh, this. I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't have an IMAX at home. I had this, right? So, um, if, you, if you actually put it like three millimeters away from your face, it, <laughs> yeah. that's a great idea. I'm going to watch it again with different eyes tonight. Yeah. Um, but there, is, there are so many magic moments in there. The one with the female and three cubs, female black bear and three cubs, and the male on the waterfall. I won't give it, a, give it away, but it, there are some immaculate uh, natural history scenes and sequences in this film that uh, I was amazed that you got, especially with the camera that size and the intricacies of filming with that equipment. And then the wet and the wind and the, just the conditions, the cold and everything, you know, it's uh, my hat's off to you. It's no easy feat, is it? Yeah, no, I always wondered, like, why the heck has no one ever done this before? But <laughs> I can tell you why now. <laughs> yeah. um, and so... What are you hoping people do after they see your film? You know, the, this film is really um, meant to hopefully inspire people to uh, want to ensure that this place continues to exist. And it's extremely fragile, and its future is, is as uncertain as so many other wilderness areas on this planet right now. You know, we're certainly seeing changes in our ocean environment that's impacting life throughout the rainforest. Uh, we've got a government in, in power right now in Canada that's hell-bent on building pipelines to, uh, throughout the coast that would introduce super tankers, uh, which would, you know, be the end of all these returning humpback whales and fin whales and so much other life. 
you know, deforestation is, is still a huge issue. Uh, you know, the forest is only about um, 30% of it is protected right now. There's still a lot more work to be done on that front. Uh, you know, respecting First Nations rights and title and, and their communities, uh, it's still a long ways away there. Yeah, so, can't become complacent, can you, you know? But uh, I think films like this just really draw the eye to it, you know? And, and I love the ecology that unfolds in it because people start to see, wow, the herrings related to the wolf, related to the bear, related to the forest. The forest nitrogen comes from the fish from the sea that wouldn't be there without the bears and wolves. Wow, mm-hmm. who did that, you know? <laughs> it's like, yeah. so these ties that we all have to these ecosystems, I think it's, uh, it's just, it's so key and your film does a really amazing job of that. I just wanted to ask you one more question about, you know, um, what would you, I mean, the wonder of this place, Ian, and the, the, the wonder of the animals there that you've fallen in love with, what, what is it that you'd like to leave us knowing specifically about this corner of the world? If we can go home and tell the people that we know about the Great Bear Rainforest, what, what is it that you'd like us to know and leave with? Well, you know, I, I think that it's, it's, not a, a, it's not a remote place. It's a place that actually, if we're successful in protecting it and, and protecting the species that exist there, that this is something that's going to impact all of our lives. It's, it's, it's this last sort of refuge where, you know, species that have been in collapse or have disappeared, you know, when you look at the plight of southern resident killer whales here and the plight of herring in, in the Salish Sea and, and Puget Sound and the plight of Chinook salmon and, you know, having these big intact refugias may be our greatest hope in terms of resiliency and hope for the future which you know when it comes to the environment is is hope for humanity so you know i think that we're just hopeful that by the time we as a species get our act together start to really understand how much the environment is part of our future that we'll still have these big places these benchmark areas to go to and learn more from and hopefully they'll help repopulate what's been lost in other areas. So places like the Great Bear Rainforest are important for not just the communities that live there, but for all of us. Yeah, yeah, wonderfully said. Thank you for all your work, Ian, and thank you for being here. Ian McAllister is director of the IMAX film The Great Bear Rainforest and co-founder of Pacific Wild. This episode was produced by Matt Martin and Jim Gates. A special thanks to our event production team, Charlotte Duran, Brendan Sweeney, Bridget Anderson, and Michaela Ginotti. Also, thank you to the Mountaineers in Seattle for hosting this event. And thanks to the beautiful bird behind me for making this such a sweet sound. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.